shows with great honor and humility, I accept this nomination. Well, it's official. For president of the United States of America. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the Democratic nominees for president and vice president. But nothing about this year's Democratic National Convention felt familiar. California. Arkansas. Mississippi. North Carolina. The American Samoa. We proudly cast 11 votes for our next president of the United States of America, Joe Biden. There was no balloon drop, no confetti, no stadium roars to punctuate applause lines. Let's fight with confidence in ourselves and a commitment to each other. Against the backdrop of a global pandemic, it was four jam-packed nights, conducted all virtually, featuring celebrity hosts. Good evening, I'm Eva Longoria Baston, and welcome Famous musicians. And even Republicans who say they'll be casting their votes for Joe Biden this year. I'm proud of my Republican heritage. I'm a lifelong Republican. For me, the choice is simple. Joe Biden is a man for our times. Times that call for all of us to take off our partisan hats and put our nation first for ourselves and, of course, for our children. We heard from both current and former party leaders. This can't be another woulda, coulda, shoulda election. Joe Biden is the president we need right now. Battle-tested, forward-looking, honest and authentic. And also from everyday Americans. In the short time I spent with Joe Biden, I could tell he really saw me, that he actually cared, that my life meant something to him. Laying out why they plan to back the Biden-Harris ticket. Someone who looks like us on a presidential ticket. That's crazy. I have a lot of confidence in Joe Biden. He's a fighter and he's the real deal. But this week also gave Democrats the chance to use this national stage to launch hit after hit at the man currently occupying the White House. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. Donald Trump doesn't deserve to call himself commander-in-chief for another four minutes, let alone another four years. But did it all work? Did the convention unite an already fractured party? Did it convince those crucial swing voters both Democrats and Republicans are fighting for? And did it excite the base enough to boost turnout? From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted. I'm Amna Nawaz. My colleagues Lisa Desjardins and Daniel Bush are with me to discuss the DNC. Lisa and Dan, thanks for joining me. It's good to talk to y'all. Great talking to you, Amna. Thanks for having us. Okay, you've both been reporting on the DNC all week, like everything else about the convention and our lives right now. We've all been watching separately from separate locations. Dan, you've been at home in New York. I've been at my home in Virginia and in our studio here. And Lisa, you have been in Wilmington, Delaware, where Joe Biden and Kamala Harris spoke. But let's just start with this unprecedented convention. So I want to get your take on how you think it's been unfolding. Lisa, you've been there in Delaware, where there has been a lot of action. What do you think about how they pulled it off? You know, it's funny. It feels like a lot of action because there was any action. This was the only place where there were any live events really in this country. But there wasn't that much here. There were two speeches, essentially, Kamala Harris on Wednesday night and, of course, Joe Biden on Thursday night. 
you know, I think it was a strange hybrid, a very difficult puzzle for Democrats to try and put together this convention. And what we saw was a feed um, of taped and lived speeches. Some were more successful than others. I think when this was successful, it was very successful. I, I think we'll probably talk about the roll call vote as one of those big successes. That was 35 minutes of people just stating how many how many delegates were for Joe Biden from their state. But it was beautifully done. It was sort of cinematic, taking people around the country and seeing different Americans with different issues of concern. Um, some of them joking. Dan and I like to go back and forth over whether Rhode Island was brilliant with its calamari remark or whether it was a disaster. I say brilliant. <laughs> The Calamari comeback state of Rhode Island casts one vote for Bernie Sanders and 34 votes for the next president, Joe Biden. But you know, that, that was a success. There were other videos that were less successful. Um, and then, of course, we can talk about the speeches themselves, which were strange, but they were not written for a, an in-person audience. They were written for television. So, Dan, what about you? What did you think? Did it, did it all work? Well, I'm going to have to start with the most important thing, which is the calamari plate. I did not (laughs) think that it worked. Um, But moving on from that, I I agree with Lisa 100%. There were elements that worked really, really well. Uh, One of them being that roll call vote that was moving and powerful. You got to see people in their favorite places in their states and get a real visual sense of of the diversity of the U.S. population, the size of the country, um, and the difficulty of putting together a coalition of voters that you know, will represent a candidate and and that, you know, a candidate can get to support them from all walks of life. Uh, That was well done. Other parts of it, less so. Um, Lisa, you were there, you know, when Kamala Harris gave her acceptance speech, she came out on stage with Joe Biden and their spouses. And then they did this bizarre thing where they waved and pointed to an empty room full of just, you know, two dozen journalists and viewers at home, us who are covering it from afar, we could see that unfold and just how awkward it was. But I guess at the end of the day, Amna, you know, they did the best they could. As, as Michelle Obama said on the first day, it is what it is. She was referring to President Trump, but she might as well have been referring to, you know, the, the challenges of doing this in the COVID era. And for the most part, it went off without a hitch. So to Dan's point, this is something we should give the Democrats credit for. Like, they're making it up, right? This is the first time anyone's ever had to do anything like this. I'm curious, do you have a specific highlight reel in your mind when you look back over the last four nights? What stands out? I was going to say one thing that jumps out to me very clearly is former President Obama's speech, Um, both for what he said and also for the format, which speaks to your question, Amna. uh, He was recorded as everyone else was um, in a way, though, that that really drove home his emotions and and his um, sort of visceral feeling about where we are as a country. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. And the consequences of that failure are severe. The camera was panning in really closely to his face. We saw, you know, as you put it, I think one time in in one of our conversations, Omna, every sigh, every deep breath. Um, And, you know, I've covered these conventions in person going back to 2004, including that famous Obama speech that launched his career. But I, I think that this was the best 
convention speech I've ever seen, which speaks to uh, his it, tremendous ability as a speaker. But also it was it was a new and different format and he captured it. You know, I do think that Democrats and Republicans should think about that format going forward because it provides a kind of intimacy with the viewer that you just can't get in a big arena. Lisa, what about you? What do you think? I think Dan is right. We, Dan and I have talked a lot about that uh, speech by the former President Obama. Uh, I also think the former First Lady's speech was another highlight of the week. I think that another highlight, honestly, the emotional highlight for me, in a way, there were a couple of emotional videos. One was Gabby Giffords uh, being able to, to give me the longest speech she's given since she was shot and nearly killed. American needs all of us to speak out even when you have to fight to find the words. And she's been recovering since that day. And I think for many of us who covered her, who knew her before she was injured, to see her able to have such command of her thoughts and speak at length was really powerful. But I think in the end, it was Joe Biden's speech that people are going to be thinking about um, for this election. I was emailing and texting with many, many Republican and Democratic sources last night to see what people thought. And far and away, he definitely exceeded expectations. May history be able to say that the end of this chapter of American darkness began here tonight as love and hope and light join in the battle for the soul of the nation. This was perhaps his smoothest speech of this campaign cycle. And for some, some have said they think it's the best speech he's given at a convention. So that's a performance that he needed. There were questions about um, his ability to give a long speech at this point. Um, Where is he in his career? Because he's at times he hasn't been as strong of a speaker as he was when he was younger. So I I think that was an important moment. What didn't work You know, I think some of these uh, videos that were pre-produced were almost too polished. It sort of felt like videos on an airline when you're when they're explaining that you need to stay in your seat and those kinds of things. But all in all, I think some things that we're going to take with us to the next conventions, the roll call vote may forever be changed. I also think the idea of celebrity hosts might be something that you continue to see because I think the four female hosts that were live every night really were outstanding and exactly what Democrats wanted. Let's talk about the meat of uh, what was actually messaged because this is all about messaging. This is meant to be a pep rally, right? And Lisa, I want to start with you on this because all of the messaging was leading up to the man. This was about the presentation of Joe Biden as the man the Democrats say should be leading the nation. He's been in public life for decades, though. So what do we not know about him? What did you think about the way they presented him this week? I think, you know, the challenge here with Joe Biden, as some other people have commented, is that he is well known, but and and he's well known as being very likable. But his likability numbers right now in polling are not that high. And so Democrats had this unusual challenge of making someone who's known for being so affable and friendly um, into someone even more likable and relatable. So they did this by kind of talking about his biography. But I think that when you when you step away, they actually did not make that as much of a priority, making Joe Biden um, someone you want over for a beer as they did 
making him look like a stable leader who is going to get us through several crises. I think this was a crisis convention. And in that way, there were actually two men on stage. One was Joe Biden and one was Donald Trump. And during this convention, I think I heard at least as much, maybe more, about Donald Trump than I did about Joe Biden. That was a strategy that Democrats are using. And it's it makes sense because the president is decreasing in popularity quickly. However, it's risky as well. You know, I ran into some voters here in Wilmington that are Trump voters, you know, and there's there's no world in which they were going to vote for Biden. But they did say, uh, you know, I was willing to listen to, to this convention, but there's just too much on the attack about oh, about Trump. And we I would like to hear more about Biden's vision. I would like just a few speeches that are only about the Democrats' vision. Now, those are Republicans, but, you know, swing voters think like that, too. Swing voters also want to have a reason to vote for Biden. So he gave them a reason. He said, I'm going to bring this country out of crisis. I'm going to bring light back into a time of darkness. Uh, But I, I think alongside that stage with Joe Biden was Donald Trump. Dan, what do you make of that? Because there were as we mentioned, there was a hit after hit on Donald Trump. You heard his name a lot. But the other point of the conventions is to excite the party. And there are still fractures within the Democratic Party. There was a lot of criticism about some lack of representation on stage. What do you think about how the Democrats pulled that part of the convention together? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's such a good point. I agree with you, Lisa, that there was a sharp contrast going on there. Um and, you know, for me anyway, this, this convention, among other things, was all about representation and the Democratic Party saying loudly and clearly, um, we are a big tent party and we care about inclusion, we care about diversity. There's a lot of time spent on the Black Lives Matter protests and movement, um, spent on you know, diversity among elected officials, um, about you know, including voices from all walks of life, native voices, uh, looking at immigration and the Latinx community. Um, and that was a not so subtle uh, contrast that Democrats made this convention and, and frankly have made in conventions past now for a couple of decades with a Republican Party that, at least in leadership, if you look at Congress, is still uh, predominantly, vastly, almost entirely made up of white men. Um, and so that stood out to me. And then also on, a, on another point, you know, when we think about the, the biography and, and sort of how Joe Biden was presented, um, this is a man who famously left the White House um, without a lot of assets, without a lot of net worth. Obama famously quipped that it was an easy vet for, for, for his team to look at Joe Biden because he didn't have any assets. He wasn't worth anything. There was nothing, no skeletons in his closet. And what we saw over and over again was this this presentation of a middle class middle class Joe, and that is a contrast with President Trump, uh, who you know uh, grew up in a very wealthy household, and of course went on to to earn a lot of money. And I do think that that's something that the viewers are watching, and perhaps at least some of them saying, you know, this is in Joe Biden, someone that I can relate to. Well, Dan, what about Kamala Harris? How does she fit into all of this? Obviously, she makes history in a number of ways just by being on the ticket, right, as a woman of color, as a black woman, as a child of immigrants. She's introducing herself to the country in her speech and in the way that she's talked about this week, too. Do you get a sense of what the Biden-Harris ticket together, like what that is for Democrats? 
I would say, Amna, that that this is sort of the flip side of what I was just talking about, which is that there are Americans who see themselves in Joe Biden and, and his story, um, but there are a lot who, who don't um, and who did not grow up in, in you know, white communities, uh, you know, in the 1950s, say. And that is, you know, partly what Kamala Harris does bring to this ticket is a lot of people of color who see themselves in her uh, or can relate to her immigrant background. And she did a very good job in her speech of talking about where she comes from, why her family history matters, and, and how her experience informs the way that she approaches politics. Yeah, I think there was a really important part of Harris's speech right in the middle where she was trying to bring all of that together um, to speak to um, racial injustice, to speak to immigrant families like her family and then also to speak to the the biden harris vision you know where she was talking about her mother and she said you know it was the values that she taught me that form my commitment as a a public servant my mother taught me that service to others gives life purpose and meaning she taught us to be conscious and compassionate about the struggles of all people to believe public service is a noble cause and the fight for justice is a shared responsibility. And she said, you know, the vision, it's a vision that she passed on to me and is passed on to generations of Americans. And then she described that vision as one of a beloved community where all are welcome, no matter what we look like, where we come from, who we love. She said, we might not agree on every detail, but we are united by a fundamental belief that every human being is of infinite worth. And to me, that that is the positive message that Democrats were putting out in this convention. They also had a job they felt they had to do in saying that the current president is dangerous, dangerous to democracy, dangerous to individual lives. So they had this message of light, as Biden described it in his speech, this beloved community, they also had a message to point out the dark. And, and, and those two things, that's a strong contrast. Every time you have an incumbent president, the election is going to be about that incumbent president. The question is that the balance that they struck, it's a tricky balance, but you could see they were going back and forth between those two ideas during the entire convention. So I want to ask you something else about the convention, because you you guys and I, we've all been there before. You know what it's like in the room. But one of the things about conventions is not just the message they put out. It's your ability to be able to hold them accountable in some way, right? You get to interview all the people who've just delivered this carefully crafted political message on stage. You get to kind of provide real-time analysis. You're there in the room getting real-time reaction. We had none of that. And they really got to control the message in a way that they haven't before. And Lisa, I want to start with you. Just get, give me your take on that because it is a very different kind of convention. They may never be the same again. But some of the, let's say, tensions in the past, especially when you look back at 2016, when some of the Bernie supporters were openly booing, we didn't get to see any of that this time. That's right. Yeah, it, it was very frustrating as a reporter to not have people to speak to to get your reporting from and especially at these conventions there are 
public officials. There are delegates from all over the country. Each have their own individual thoughts. They've been given talking points. We know this. But you're, if you talk to them for a while, you're going to get their real thoughts and you're going to be able to uncover what they're really concerned about. Do they, what are they worried about with this election? All of these things. You know, we weren't able to talk to people about uh, the mail-in voting situation in each state, which is different and, and something that's important. Uh, that was incredibly frustrating as a reporter that I wasn't able to provide that for our viewers and wasn't able to get that information. But on the other hand, I was grateful that the on Thursday night when there were actual people in a parking lot, even if they were in cars, watching a speech so that I could see in real time, even if these are these are the probably the high level most pro-Biden, Biden supporters that were in that parking lot. But it still was really valuable to me to see which parts of the speech were they reacting to. Where, When were they honking their horns, which they were doing? When were they waving their flags? And it was different parts than I would have guessed had I just been watching in my living room. So to some degree, the bar, the bar could not be lower, any lower. You know, I'm talking about how amazed I am by people in parked cars at this point but, but, <laughs> but so grateful but, so but grateful to so be hanging grateful. out in a parking lot <laughs> and dan the other part of this is with a virtual convention all of that dissent and tension was also playing itself out virtually like if you followed along on social media there were a lot of progressives who were unhappy that alexandria ocasio-cortez for example got only a minute to speak a lot of people were asking where was julian castro this whole time you know, I think that the the way you're sort of thinking about this and, and thinking about control and, and how much more control the party has is is spot on, Amna. And you mentioned the Bernie supporters walking out in 2016. I remember that moment well. It was chaotic. They staged a kind of virtual sit-in kind of awkwardly in the middle of the media tent. So all the reporters were sort of scrambling to cover it. Um, you know, to, to your point, Lisa, it, it, it was a chance for us to interact with these people. Um, and it was messy but it was democracy in action, you know, and and that element was missing this time around. And, you know, these conventions are always scripted to a certain extent. But once the speaker is out on the stage, you can't control them. And if Bill Clinton wants to go long as as he has in the past, he does. Now, you know, he can't do that. And others, you know, you you can't go long when when you're just going to get edited down in post. Um, But to your point, Lisa, I do I do sort of worry about how much more control this format does give the party, um, and it's this sort of weird balance of, of authenticity, right? And and sort of is this something I think most Americans can relate to in this age of COVID. If, if you are on a Zoom call um, for work, on the one hand, you know, it, it is raw and unvarnished because your, your colleagues are seeing you in, in your natural state. On the other hand, you can always just turn the camera off, right? And so it's this weird moment where both we're getting an up-close-and-personal look at people, um, but also the party is controlling it. And Amna, you know, if they don't want to give uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a large speaking role, they won't. If they want to limit it, um, they can. And that did change the nature of the convention. Okay, guys, so let's think about what happens next. Dan, obviously, Biden and Harris have to get out there together in some way. What is what does that look like in the middle of a pandemic? And the short answer is we really don't know. Normally, they would be out campaigning um, together, separately in front of voters, you know, uh, going to diners together, showing the, the country their camaraderie and, and rapport. And they just can't really do that now. Um, they're not holding events, large events, live events. They're not doing those campaign rallies. 
And it's going to be really hard, Amna. They have a big challenge ahead of them. They can't rely on sort of the old playbook. So we are all waiting to see what the new playbook looks like. And Lisa, meanwhile, we're all waiting to see what Republicans do next week. There's the Republican National Convention. It's going to be their chance to take their pitch to the American people why they should be reelecting President Trump. We know a little bit. We know there are some confirmed speakers, right? The president's going to speak, the vice president, the first lady, some senior Republican officials. But what else do we know about what to expect from the RNC? We know very little right now, Amna. And, you know, this not to say that there, there isn't reason for that, because the Republicans moved their convention twice, uh, first from Charlotte, then the, at least the president's own speech from Charlotte, then to Jacksonville, Florida, all of it because of the pandemic. And then they've settled on the White House as the venue that we know about for the president and then the Rose Garden for the first lady. But other than that, Omna, we honestly don't know. We don't know how many hours of time they plan to fill at this point. We don't know who will be in those hours. It, it, it's something, you know, I just ran into some Biden campaign officials in the lobby of the hotel, you know, and they were trying to get information out of me because they're trying to figure out how to respond to what's going to happen next week with the Republicans. And they said, what's what what are the Republicans planning? And I said, honestly, we really I know as much as you do. And and it's been that kind of a cycle, Amna, where people who should be doing the planning are asking reporters <laughs> for what is happening. <laughs> and, you know, I think we're going to th- this is a president who is known for operating largely based on his confidence in his own instincts. And he makes a lot of game time calls. And I think many elements of this Republican convention will be close to game time calls for them. And, you know, that kind of unpredictability is something that he sold himself on. And does that work in a political convention? We're going to find out. We will find out, indeed. That is next week on the Republican National Convention. In the meantime, we can now wrap up the Democratic National Convention. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much to both Lisa and Daniel for joining me. That is a wrap for this historic Democratic National Convention. In case you missed anything, you can always go back. You can watch all of our coverage. That's on our website. That's pbs.org slash newshour. And we'll be back next week as the Republicans gather to make their case for the re-election of President Trump. I've got a mental balloon drop right now going on. Fireworks. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Virtual balloons. Virtual confetti. This episode was produced by Mike Fritz and Vika Aronson and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, and James Williams. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all of our coverage on air and on our website. That's pbs.org newshour. Thanks for listening. <laughs>